Chapter 4, Part 12 of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 10. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. Part 12 of 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part 12. There is one other point. I believe Mr. Dorsey did say, in his examination in chief, that he did not talk to anybody about it, and it afterward occurred that he did go and ask Mr. Edmonds whether what he had asked Clendenning to do was illegal or improper. To that contradiction you are welcome. Mr. Kerr gives the date of Boone's circular to the postmasters asking for information, and says it was dated December 1st, 1879. Thereupon, Mr. Merrick corrects him and says it was in 1878. The court does the same. As a matter of fact, these circulars were dated December 1877. Gentlemen, I just simply speak to this to show how easy it is for people to be mistaken. Those circulars were gotten up for the purpose of getting out information before bidding. All the bids were put in in February 1878. The circulars were sent out, I believe, in November and December 1877. And yet, upon that one point, Mr. Kerr is mistaken two years. On page 4512, Mr. Kerr states that Miner, in April 1878, said to Moore that it all depended upon affidavits of the contractors, and that they were all good affidavit men. The object of this, if it had an object, was to show that this conspiracy was entered into with Moore, and that S.W. Dorsey was a part of it in April 1878. The evidence of Moore is that the conversation took place not in April, but in July, 1878, at the city of Denver. And yet, Mr. Kerr tells you that it was in April, 1878. It is not, perhaps, a very material point, but it simply serves to show you the manner in which this evidence is repeated to you by the counsel for the prosecution. At page 4537, Mr. Kerr says that before J.W. Dorsey went west, he made an arrangement with his brother to sell out his interest for $10,000, that he did this before he started west, that he did it before there was any service put on, and that these contracts were taken at such low figures. Yet, John W. Dorsey had raised his interest up to $10,000. Mr. Kerr tells you that the evidence shows that before any service was put on, and before John W. Dorsey went west, he tried to sell out his interest for $10,000. Now what was the object in making this statement, unless it was pure forgetfulness? Why, it was to connect Vail with this business sometime in April, 1878. 
on pages 4100 and 4102 j w dorsey swears that he was here in washington in november 1878 before that time he had gone to the tongue river route he had come back from bismarck and it was then not in april it was then not before he went west it was then not before any service was put on that he talked with vale about selling out to him for ten thousand dollars and it was in november that he left the instructions for his brother to sell to vale it was not april it was not before he went west it was not before any service was put on at page forty five forty mr kerr states that dorsey held thirty-three routes and there was not one of them i suppose that was not expedited to the fullest extent what evidence is there of that is there any evidence that any route of dorsey's was expedited not mentioned in this indictment did not mr kerr know whether the routes had been expedited or not did not i offer in this court to prove what was done with every solitary route we had i say to the gentleman that the other routes were not expedited i say to the gentleman that only two other routes were and we were not interested in them and i say also that they know the record and they knew the record when this statement was made but they may have forgotten it but is it fair gentlemen for the prosecuting officer to state to you that he supposed all the routes of dorsey were expedited one of those in the indictment was not expedited and not a route outside of the indictment belonging to dorsey in which he had an interest was expedited so much for that statement at page forty five forty six you are told by mr kerr that nobody ever heard of expedition on a route before we proved what form of contracts had been in the post office department for twenty years and proved that in every one of them there was a clause for expedition so much for that evidence gentlemen on page forty five forty six mr kerr tells us that j w dorsey testified that the roots were taken so low as to cut out other people but that they knew they were to be expedited and they knew they were to be increased j w dorsey testified upon that subject and his testimony will be found at page forty eighty five question did you have an arrangement by which you should bid an extremely small amount on the roots with the further understanding that the service was to be increased and expedited answer no sir i never thought of such a thing and in his entire testimony in chief and cross i believe there is not another question on that subject on page forty five forty nine referring to the letter of john m peck which was in fact written by minor mr kerr says cedarville ought to have had as many males as the other points between according to the order 
but they were going to supply it only once a week. As a matter of fact, gentlemen, this letter was written on the 22nd of October, 1878, and at the time the letter was written, the mail, according to the contract, was carried only once a week on that route, and consequently Cedarville would have had exactly the same mail as any other point, that is to say, once a week. Page 556 of the record shows that three trips a week were put upon this route to Loop City with a schedule of 13 hours, but not until the 10th of July, 1879, nine months after this letter was written. On page 4609, Mr. Kerr, in commenting upon an affidavit on the Tokerville and Adderville route, reads from the evidence of John W. Dorsey, citing page 3945, and ends at this question and answer. Question. It was done so entirely, was it not? Answer. It ought to have been so. Now let me read you the balance. Question. Was it not done so? Answer. No, sir. Question. It was not? Answer. No, sir. Question. For whose benefit was it done? Answer. He, meaning Burdell, stole $5,000 on that route, or very nearly that, $4,900 on that very route. Question. When did he steal that $5,000? Answer, about a year ago, or a year and a half. I do not remember the time. Question, from whom? Answer, from Mr. Bosler and myself. Question, at what time? Answer, I should think in February, 1882. The question now arises, did Mr. Burdell take the money as charged? Read now from the record at pages 734 and 735, and you will find in the last line of the tabular statement introduced in this case that on this very route, $4,827.83 was paid to M.C. Burdell as subcontractor on that route. We also find that it was paid on the 4th of February, 1882, this is the money that Dorsey swears Burdell stole, and that gentleman never took the stand to deny it. At page 4616, Mr. Kerr, after going over all the evidence with regard to the affidavits as to the impossibility of the number of men and horses doing the service rendered necessary by the affidavit, comes to the following conclusion that under the oath the proportion was as nine to twenty-three, that under the oath of Johnson the real proportion should have been, and was, eight to twenty-two. In other words, the real proportion, according to Mr. Kerr's own statement, would have taken more money from the Treasury than the wrong proportion made under the fraudulent affidavit. And that was nine to twenty-three. 9 into 23 goes twice in 5 ninths. That is, 255% and a fraction. That 
is the fraudulent proportion. Mr. Kerr says that the real proportion was not as 9 into 23, but as 8 into 22. 8 into 22 goes twice and 6 eighths. That is to say, 2 and 3 quarters. That is to say, 275%. The fraudulent proportion, according to his claim, only gave us 255%. The real proportion, which Mr. Kerr admits was right, according to the evidence of Johnson, would have given us 275%. In other words, we got 20%, less under the fraud than we would under the evidence of Johnson that Mr. Kerr admits to be correct. Finding that it was 20%, less under the fraudulent affidavit than under Johnson's estimate, he shouts fraud. On page 4617, Mr. Kerr tells us that Sanderson had no more to do with the root than you or I had. On page 731, I find that Mr. Sanderson drew all the money on the route from Segouch to Lake City, I believe with one exception, the third quarter of one year, 1878. It may be. He drew every dollar upon that route, anyhow, up to February 17, 1882, except for one quarter. And yet Mr. Kerr stood up before you and said that Sanderson had no more to do with the route than you or I had. Let's see if we have any more evidence. I find on page 3271 a subcontract executed en route 38150 from Sagouch to Lake City by Miner, Peck and Company to Sanderson for the full time until June 30th, 1882. I find that the subcontract is signed by John R. Miner and J. L. Sanderson. This contract was to be from the 1st of July, 1878, and was made the 15th of May, 1878. And here it is in evidence. The evidence is that the contract was made between Minor Peck and Company and Sanderson. The evidence also is that Sanderson drew the pay. And yet, Mr. Kerr stands up before you and says that Sanderson had no more to do with the route than you or I had. The subcontract, gentlemen, states that Sanderson is to have the entire pay, and it was before the contract term began. So much for that. Mr. Kerr interjects, when was it filed? Mr. Wilson replies, that does not make any difference. Mr. Ingersoll resumes, when was it filed? There was a trial in my town of a suit against the city, I believe, for allowing a culvert to get filled up and flood a man's cellar. They brought in evidence to prove, don't you see, that the culvert was not filled up, and one witness swore that the day before the rain he saw a dog go through there. One of the jurors got up and said he would like to ask a question. He said, what is the color of that dog? On page 4631, 
Mr. Kerr states that during the investigation by Congress, contractors got out printed letters and sent them to every subcontractor upon every star route in the country, asking them to write to their members of Congress, urging their members of Congress to vote for this appropriation. On page 1346 is Rodale's letter upon this very route, in which not one word is said about the contractor doing anything one way or the other. There is no evidence that any other letter was written on that route. I call your attention to it to show how the prosecution strained every possible point, and how they endeavored to patch and piece and putty and veneer this evidence. Mr. Minor wrote a letter, page 669. I do not remember any of the other evidence upon this subject, and certainly it would be impossible to write a milder letter than Mr. Minor wrote. He did not ask the people to get up petitions against reduction or ask for more service. Here is what he says, and I will read it to you. Mr. Minor's letter. It will be well for the people of your section to send to the member of Congress from your district such petitions as will express their opinions on the subject of this reduction. Truly yours, R. Minor, Agent. Could you write a milder letter than that to save your life and refer to the subject? Could you write a fairer letter than that to save your life? He does not say get up petitions against it. He does not say send those petitions to your member of Congress and tell him to do what he can to prevent it. Not one word of that kind. Yet this is considered as evidence of fraud. That is considered as evidence of conspiracy. The next point made is that Mr. Kerr states at page 4632 that Brady endeavored to bribe the members of Congress into making this appropriation by doubling every star route in the southern and middle states, and did so during the congressional investigation. What are the facts? The deficiency bill, passed April 7, 1880, that appropriated money only for the purpose of carrying the mills up to June 30, 1880. The regular appropriation bill was passed at the same session and appropriated money to carry the mails from the 1st of July, 1880. Now let us see if Brady doubled the trips in the southern and middle states during that investigation. On page 3393, Brady says, Practically on July 1st, 1880, we doubled up the entire service for all the southern and middle states. This was after the deficiency bill had passed. It was after the money appropriated by that bill had been expended, and it was paid for out of the regular appropriation for the post office department. Yet that was a bribe. It just shows that Congress, by the regular appropriation, endorsed the policy of Mr. Key to have a daily mail to every place where there was a county seat. At page 4652, on the route from Mineral Park to Pioche, there were two petitions 
mark 17k and 18k it is somewhat singular that the government brought no persons whose names are on these petitions to show that they had not authorized their names to be signed thereto but they brought persons to show that the signatures were not genuine on page sixteen twenty one the witness wright swears that the names are the same on both petitions he is then asked if he knows the signatures of any other people and he says yes he then says that the signature of john deland is not genuine he swears that he knows nearly every one of the people he is then asked whether these signatures are in the handwriting of the people and he replies that he thinks not then he is asked as to the signature of cornell and he says that is not in his handwriting here is his cross-examination gentlemen i asked him do you know these people made him swear that he knew mr street that he knew the signatures of many that he knew these people i proved where they were living that they are living in the country now good respectable honest people and yet the government did not bring one man whose name had been written here to prove that he had not authorized it why because they could not they knew by the testimony here that the petitions were absolutely and perfectly honest and it is in that way that they seek to deprive men of their liberty they did not call a man whose name appeared on these petitions to say that his signature was not genuine or not authorized i proved that many of them are still living and first-rate men now gentlemen you remember besides that that mr h s stevens the delegate from that territory recommended the same thing asked for by those petitions pages sixteen thirty five and sixteen thirty six where it was admitted by counsel for the government that the letters of stevens were genuine it is upon that same route that general fremont also wrote a letter page sixteen thirty six and i will show you that the names are exactly or substantially the same on eighteen k as those found at pages sixteen thirty eight and sixteen thirty nine mr kerr and mr bliss both endeavored to show that there were no petitions on this route and that it was simply done on a letter if you look at page 1603 you will find the evidence of mr crider who was postmaster at mineral park in which he says there were petitions in order to show that there was a conspiracy between these parties or between dorsey and vale or dorsey verdell and vale mr kerr called the attention of the jury to two letters one written by Burdell to the sixth auditor and one written by vale here is a letter dated the twenty first of august eighteen eighty it is introduced of course to show that there was a conspiracy at the time between mr vale and mr dorsey it was written by mr Burdell to the sixth auditor to the sixth auditor sir h m vale 
was subcontractor on route 4104 during the first quarter of 1879. In the first settlement for that quarter, Vail was paid for certain expedited service. It was subsequently discovered that the expedition thus paid for was never performed. The department, therefore, and very properly, too, charged back to the route the amount thus paid for expedition never performed, viz. some $2,800. Meanwhile, Vail, who was alone in fault, had ceased to have any connection with the route. The charging back, therefore, fell on the wrong man, the man who was in no way responsible for the non-performance of the expedition, except so far as he stood between the department and the subcontractor. It is true that this payment was made by the regular contractor to the subcontractor, but it is equally true that it was, in a measure, a compulsory payment. By the rules of the post office department, it is made obligatory on the regular contractor to pay the subcontractor before the department will settle with him. It is not, therefore, a payment as between two individuals. The receipt is on the form prescribed by the post office department and is witnessed by the then postmaster Edmonds as the rules prescribe. It is on file in the post office department, and I maintain that our covenants were fulfilled when we put the receipt on file. If Vail had performed the service as he agreed he would do, and for doing which he received this money, we should have been reimbursed by a certificate of service from the contract office. Now, will you permit Vail to take advantage of his own wrong, and thus enable him to defraud another man out of his money? I refrain from discussing the question as to what would be the duty of the department if Vail, who had received the money wrongfully, had ceased to have any connection with the department, because it is not pertinent to this issue. If it were, I could cite you to many authorities and precedents to the effect that even then it would be your duty to refund the money to me. But this is not necessary, because Vail is still doing business with the department. He is subcontractor en route 44156 for the full contract pay, which is $22,000 per annum. Hence the department will have no difficulty in reimbursing itself for what was, in simple truth, an overpayment. I think you will agree with me when I ask that this money be refunded to the subcontractor on Route 4104 and charged to Route 44156 because it is simply correcting an error. You have the same authority to charge it to one as you have to charge it to the other, and you have already charged it to me. The law merchant would experience no difficulty in adjusting the matter of this sort. The merchant who would refuse to correct an error of this character would be justly called a lame duck, and would be scouted from change Vail was erroneously paid for the performance of a service which he never did perform. 
Therefore I ask that he be compelled to render into Caesar the things that he Caesars. Respectfully, M. C. Rodell. Acting for himself and for the regular contractor on Route 40-104. End of letter. That is to show also, gentlemen, that there was a conspiracy between Vale and Rodell. Now Mr. Vale wrote a letter also to the same man. I will read it. Washington, D.C., July ninth, 1880. Honorable J. McGrew. Sir, in reply to yours of July 8th, relating to the Jennings case, I would state that I did not receive the money in manner and form as stated by one M.C. Wardell, nor was the draft of J.W. Dorsey on said Route 4104 for the quarter named to get an advance of money for myself or for my own use. At the time I receded for my pay as subcontractor on said route, I did not, in fact, receive any money, but did so receipt that J. W. Dorsey might negotiate his draft on said route, and for no other purpose. Although I was subcontractor of record on said route at the time named, I was not a subcontractor in my own behalf, but as trustee for J. W. Dorsey, S. W. Dorsey, Isaac Jennings, and others, to collect said money and pay it over as said parties would direct. I further state that all money that ever came into my hands from said root, I did pay over to the parties named as trustee, as by them directed. Acting as a trustee of said Jennings, and believing that he had performed the mail service on said root, as by him agreed, and in accordance with the laws and regulations of the post office department, I did pay said Jennings on the first day of April, 1879, the sum of $1,257.73, a sum of money he was entitled to, provided he had carried the mail three days per week on the schedule required, which I fully believed at that time he had done, and for a long time after. I further state that I am informed that said Jennings is not responsible, that it would be utterly impossible for me to receive back the $2,800, or any part thereof, that in fact this sum of money sought to be collected of me, if collected for said Jenny's benefit, or go into his hands in addition to the sum he now has unlawfully doubly remunerating him for his neglect of duty. I further state that all the money collected on said route not paid to said Jennings was paid to liquidate the debts of J. W. Dorsey, S. W. Dorsey, and others previously contracted, and not one dollar ever remained in my hands. I further state, I believe both J. W. Dorsey and S. W. Dorsey are irresponsible, and it would be impossible for me to collect any part of said money from them. As above stated, said money came into my hand only as their agent or trustee, and at once paid out as they directed. That my subcontract was put on file simply to enable J. W. Dorsey to negotiate his draft on said route, when in fact said Jennings was the real subcontractor. 
said jennings agreed to perform the service on said route strictly in accordance with the laws and regulations of the department for the annual sum of twelve thousand six hundred dollars the duplicate of which contract was delivered over to s w dorsey by myself and which i believe is now in the hands of m c Rodell, and which or a copy thereof i demand shall be filed with you in this case that you may see what said jennings agreed to do this is certainly a strange claim jennings agreed to perform mail service on said route i believed he had done it and paid him accordingly it turns out long after he did not properly perform the service but was attempting a swindle and a deduction is ordered for not performing the service properly then this man the guilty party having got money from me as trustee wrongfully as well as from the government and asked that the auditor compel me to pay him the sum of twenty eight hundred dollars when as i am informed he is seeking to get this same deduction remitted surely if he succeeded in all this he will make a good thing out of his rascality and i am a good victim without remedy i state again i did not hypothecate said draft for myself did not receive one cent as subcontractor but became the payee of said draft that said j w dorsey might negotiate it and i to dispose of the proceeds as he should direct all of which i did therefore i request you not to compel me to pay the sum of money asked but if i am liable at all to let the parties seek their redress at law where all the facts can be obtained and justice rendered me and it is also well known that i am a man of means and any judgment rendered against me could and would be collected dollar for dollar i am very respectfully h m vale end of letter that was introduced to show that at the time vale was in a conspiracy with s w dorsey why did they introduce it simply for one line in it in which he says he was acting as the trustee of s w dorsey he was how Dorsey had advanced money, the roots were liable, and the persons who held the roots had agreed to refund it. The subcontracts were made to Vail, and Vail agreed out of the proceeds of the root to pay the debt to S. W. Dorsey. To that extent he was the trustee of S. W. Dorsey. Dorsey swears it, Vail admits it, and we all claim it to be true and yet they introduced that letter simply because that line was there. Now, gentlemen, I have read both of those letters, and I want you to remember them if you can, and tell me whether at the time Vale and Dorsey were in a conspiracy together to defraud this government. And yet the government introduced this letter just to prove that one thing and no more. This ends chapter 4, part 12 of 24.